All right, so we're going to uh, get started. Uh, and although not new to IAS USA, uh, uh, Christina Wyatt is new to the DC course. Renal disease is something I think we all struggle with, and particularly in the population in DC, I think we probably see more renal disease than some cities would. So we're very pleased to have uh, Christina Wyatt here. She trained at Duke, has been on the faculty at Mount Sinai in New York for a number of years, and we're pleased to have her as a new addition to the DC course. Christina? Thanks, Henry. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, as you mentioned, DC really is sort of a hotbed for kidney disease in the setting of HIV infection. Certainly the DC Baltimore area and our colleagues at Hopkins have been very active um, in writing about this disease as well. So just a quick disclosures, I have received uh, grants and research support from Gilead Sciences, the manufacturer of my favorite nephrotoxin. Um, and they have, <laughs> I have also um, received payment for the development of internal uh, research or internal um, clinical training for uh, BMS. So after attending this presentation, I hope that all of you will be able to discuss some of the approved and investigational antiretroviral agents that have the potential to either cause kidney injury um, and or to affect estimates of kidney function, as Dr. Uh, Sag alluded to already, um, and also be able to describe special considerations for the prescription of antiretroviral therapy in HIV-infected patients who undergo kidney transplant. So just a couple of questions. This is actually a post-test question for, uh, for Mike's lecture and a pre-test for mine. Um, which of the following uh, drugs do not significantly affect uh, creatinine secretion? Cobacistat, adazanavir, dolutegravir, or trimethoprim? I realize the music should be the great theme song from uh, The Good, Bad, and the Ugly, but. Great, so you guys so far are doing, uh, doing pretty well in this quiz. Um, the vast majority of, of folks um, selected adizanivir. About 8% of the audience fell asleep during Mike's talk, um, and 10% uh, of you have never given back to him. Your patients are doing so well that you haven't needed to do that in the past. I'm having a little bit of trouble with the advancer, which I think was the um, and the second question, um, alluding to sort of the second half of the talk, is what clinically significant drug-drug interaction can be anticipated in an HIV-positive kidney transplant recipient? Decreased levels of the anti-metabolite mycophenolate mofetil, um, the brand name for that is Celsept, for those of you who don't use it, in patients who are on an NNRTI. Increased levels of mycophenolate mofetil in patients on an integrase inhibitor. Increased levels of calcineurin inhibitors, those are either cyclosporin or tacrolimus, in patients on a protease inhibitor, or decreased levels of calcineurin inhibitors in patients on a PI. Great, so it looks like about two-thirds of the audience is free to go for lunch. Um, <laughs> and, and about 15% of you guys are in big trouble um, and are, have to, are stuck here with me. Um, so I'm going to start with a clinical case. Um, the, uh, th this is a 56-year-old African-American woman um, who showed up to see her uh, our primary care provider in the HIV clinic with a complaint of vomiting for about two weeks. Um, her history is significant for HIV-AIDS. Her last CD4 was around 300. Her nadir was uh, less than 100. 
She also was hepatitis C co-infected. You can see her regimen there. She was on uh, tenofovir, FTC, uh, uh, ritonavir boosted, lopinavir. Now we have to say ritonavir boosted, I guess. Um, and she'd been taking ibuprofen for about a week um, for some sort of general malaise that came along with this nausea vomiting. Her labs are, um, as you can see here, quite remarkable for a serum creatinine of 21. Um, this case was actually called to me by an intern who was seeing a patient in the ER. And the intern said, and the patient's baseline creatinine was 1.4. Um, the patient's got some acidosis. Surprisingly, for this level of um, renal failure, there was really not much in the way of hyperkalemia, which is um, something that sort of struck a little bit of a chord. Um, she had at that time a urinalysis that was back. Um, she had proteinuria, ketonuria, and glycosuria on, on her urinalysis. And because of the vomiting, she had a plain film that was unremarkable. She was sent to the ER, I guess. Um, so just a little bit of context for this case. Um, it's important to remember that in general, acute kidney injury is more common in HIV patients than it is in the general population. Um, it's associated with poor outcomes, so it's not just, you know, this time-limited episode, patients have acute kidney injury, most of them skirt by without needing dialysis, they recover, they leave the hospital. Um, there are data, uh, the data emerged first in the general population, and it's now been confirmed in HIV-positive individuals as well, that even very mild episodes of acute kidney injury are associated with an increased risk um, for adverse outcomes in the long term. So this is just one study from the VA population that suggested that even um, AKI stage one, this is like a creatinine increase of 0.3 milligrams per deciliter from baseline, can be associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease in stage renal disease and death. Um, the mechanism for this is not known. It's thought, at least in the general population, that this probably is mediated through an increased risk for chronic kidney disease, which is known to be um, an increased risk, obviously, for in-stage renal disease, but also for cardiovascular disease and increased mortality. What causes acute kidney injury in HIV? This is probably the best study. It's getting to be a bit of an old study, um, but really one of the few that went through and tried to adjudicate uh, causes of acute kidney injury. Um, this was a cohort of about 750 patients that were followed at UNC um, in North Carolina. And they, they went back and looked at all the cases to see what the cause uh, was. About 50% of the cases were attributed to a systemic infection. And the vast majority of those were actually AIDS-defining um, infections, which uh, brings up the point that acute kidney injury is certainly more common in patients with advanced HIV disease. About a third of the cases were attributed to drugs. And interestingly, the vast majority of those were not antiretrovirals. These were mostly beta-lactams, aminoglycosides. Um, there were some radiocontrast nonsteroidals in a couple of cases of lithium toxicity. Um, and then there were, this was a, case, a study that was done in the early 2000s. There were still some patients on indenivir and some patients beginning to take tenofovir. And they did see like minimal number of cases related to those two drugs. Finally, about 10% of their cases were um, related to liver failure, and these were almost all in patients with hepatitis C, um, which I think is something important. Hepatitis C is, is a co-infection that has a huge impact on the um, epidemiology of chronic kidney disease, both uh, potentially in the general population, but certainly in patients with HIV. So back to our case, this is a patient who's coming in with pretty severe acute kidney injury. Um, and uh, these are some of the other labs that have come back in the meantime. She's got a urine sodium uh, of greater than 60 and a serum phosphorus of 5.2. And um, you can see her serum glucose there of 79. These were sort of data that the intern didn't fill me in on the first time. So I'm now just going to get people to vote on what they think is the most likely cause of acute kidney injury in this patient. 
Great, so this group is doing pretty well. The bulk of people um, voted for tenofovir toxicity, and I'll talk about, there's obviously a few things here that might have thrown people off. Um, a number of people suggested hepatorenal syndrome. This is a patient with hepatitis C co-infection. Um, I'll add that she had fairly well-compensated hepatitis C at this time. She had cirrhosis, but well-compensated. Um, Pre-renal is certainly a good guess, um, and that was, that was probably our first consideration given her, her two-week history of nausea vomiting. Um, and it's certainly possible that that was a precipitating factor. Um, the one thing that went against that was this high urine sodium. So typically, if somebody's just pre-renal, the urine sodium will be very high because the kidney is trying to hold on to as much salt and water as possible. Once that's been going on for a while, that all bets are off, and it's certainly possible that that um, some sort of GI illness was actually the precipitating factor here. Um, and uh, I'm glad to see that only a couple of people suggested that this was diabetic ketoacidosis. There is acidosis, there um, are ketones. Um, the patient is not diabetic, um, and I think that uh, you know this is it's it's less likely to be the case. So what is the classic presentation? Everybody here is is at least read about it, um, if not seen a case. Um, the classic presentation of tenofovir toxicity is obviously a proximal tubulopathy. Um, injury and um, inability to sort of reabsorb the factors that, or the um, analytes that are normally reabsorbed by the proximal tubule. Only about 2% of patients, if you look at cohort studies, develop clinically significant toxicity, whether that's this proximal tubular injury or significant elevation in serum creatinine. I, of course, as a nephrologist, feel like it's much more because those are the cases that I see. Um, but that really does seem to, that number seems to be borne out um, in multiple cohort studies. Uh, interestingly, there are much more frequent subclinical abnormalities. Um, 25 to, say, 60% of patients in some cohorts will have um, increased excretion of these things that are normally uh, absorbed by the proximal tubule. So this is, for example, um, uh, phosphorus. So if you look in um, patients who are on tenofovir versus patients who are not, there does tend to be a much higher excretion of phosphorus in the urine than in patients who um, are not taking tenofovir. What that means, we have no idea. Um, and I think it's too early to say whether that has any clinical significance or not. Interestingly, these are data from um, a meta-analysis. This is, again, this is a, a couple years old now. But um, looking at a combination on the top, you can see these are randomized trials. Um, let's see if I can. These studies up here are randomized trials. These down here are observational studies. Um, and to the uh, left of the line of identity is essentially um, patients who had developed a uh, decline in GFR or creatinine clearance, actually, in this case, um, over the course of a study. And to the right would be an increase. Um, these are comparing patients on tenofovir versus whatever the control arm. So the control arm in these studies were, were all um, active treatment, but non-tenofovir-containing regimens. Um, and you can see, actually, for all of the studies that the um, decline in GFR was greater in the tenofovir arm, although um, none of the randomized trials reached significance, with the exception of this uh, one. Um, and the cohort studies, uh, again, a little bit of a mixed bag, but the vast majority of them did tend to show more of a decline in GFR um, in patients on tenofovir. Um, one of the reasons that I didn't include tenofovir on, as one of the uh, choices on my question about whether or not um, these drugs interfere with creatinine secretion is it's certainly been suggested that that could be the case with tenofovir. This sort of phenomenon um, does kind of look like that phenomenon that we talked about with cobacistat and with dolutegravir. Um, however, the in vitro studies and the sort of pharmacokinetic studies have not borne that out. So there's no direct evidence that that's the case. So this does seem to be a true effect of uh, tenofovir on uh, creatinine clearance. 
Just a reminder that if you're in a bind and you can't make a decision about what to do or whether a case is truly representative of tenofovir toxicity, you can do a kidney biopsy. We don't do this often because certainly a classic case of proximal tubulopathy, these patients come in um, wasting things that the proximal tubular sh tubules should reabsorb, like phosphorus, glucose, amino acids, bicarbonate. Um, those patients who come in with hypophosphatemia and an increased fractional excretion of um, urinary phosphorus, patients who come in with glycosuria like our patient, um, those patients are pretty easy. And unless there's really compelling reason not to stop the tenofovir, I think most of us would be inclined just to stop and see if that fixes the problem. Um, patients who may be hepatitis B co-infected, for example, patients who have um, significant resistance profiles and may not have good alternative regimens, or patients where it's not so clear. So this patient, her serum phosphorus was 5.2, you might recall. This patient um, had two-week history of um, progressive sort of symptoms. This had probably been going on for a while. And actually, that baseline creatinine of 1.4, if you look back, wasn't really a baseline creatinine. She actually had a baseline creatinine of closer to 0.6 um, and had sort of crept up to 1.4 and then gone out of town for a few months. And I think during that time, probably she probably had early evidence that this was tenofovir toxicity all along. Um, so it, this is just a reminder that at some point, once your GFR falls far enough, you may not excrete any of these things because you're not filtering them. So the first step is that these things are filtered into the urine from the plasma. The second step is that some of them are then reabsorbed by the proximal tubule. So at some point, when your GFR falls far enough, you're not filtering enough phosphorus to lose phosphorus in the urine in significant amounts. So the fact that this patient's serum phosphorus was high, I think, probably did throw a few people in the audience off. Um, it's just a reminder that you know things have to get into the first step of the urine before they can, uh, can wind up coming out on the other end. So the, um, a, a kidney biopsy in a patient with um, tenofovir toxicity, classically the glomerulus is unaffected. Um, and it really is a disease that primarily affects the proximal tubules, both clinically but also histologically. So this is a diagnosis that can be made on kidney biopsy. Um, unfortunately, this is a case where there's a fair amount of all that sort of light pink stuff doesn't belong there. That's either um, scar tissue and some edema. So that suggests this is, this is that case. This case um, already had fairly advanced fibrosis because this had been going on for a while. Um, I think you know the, the question about reversibility is not something that I'm going to discuss in great detail. But a patient like this, um, the course of this patient actually was she started on dialysis for about three months. She was discharged from the hospital on dialysis and a new antiretroviral regimen. And after about three months, was able to come off dialysis um, and wound up with a baseline creatinine that was closer to that one that the intern reported to me. So instead of a baseline creatinine of 0.6, she had one of 1.4. So and that's that's really related to this fibrosis the sort of extra pink stuff that shouldn't that shouldn't be there. So this is a, a process that, if caught early, I think is probably nearly 100% reversible. Um, but if it is allowed to go on for some time, it's probably not. The risk factors for tenofovir toxicity, I think, still remain a bit controversial. This is a little bit more challenging than just checking for um, HLA type. Um, Again, I think a classic one and, and often missed one that, that's not so contentious is the unrecognized low GFR. So this patient, when we look back at her, she's a very slight, small woman, not a whole lot of muscle mass. If you remember where serum creatinine comes from, that's it. Um, and I think probably her creatinine of 1.4 already reflected a GFR of less than 50 or creatinine clearance of less than 50. So um, at that point, in addition to being called back for repeat testing, she probably should have had her um, some consideration of dose reduction 
at that point, even if they didn't think tenofovir was the culprit. Um, so I think unrecognized low GFR is something that we all have to be careful about, particularly as our population ages. There are some studies to suggest a genetic predisposition, although um, most of the studies have focused on uh, transporters that are not involved in the transport of tenofovir um, in, the in the proximal tubule. There's some more recent ones that are uh, focused on the, the correct transporters. Um, and obviously, there are some concomitant medications. Being on a concomitant nephrotoxin is probably a, a bad combination as well. So just a little bit, I know everybody's been dying to think about the um, tubular transport of uh, tenofovir and what happens inside the proximal tubular cell. That's why you all came back after Mike's talk. Um, so this is just a schematic of a um, proximal tubular cell, um, the basolateral side, that's the blood side, um, and the uh, apical side, which is the urine side. And essentially, things um, are going in both directions. So tenofovir and creatinine are, are supposed to be going, um, to a certain extent, out um, into the urine side. And certain things, as I mentioned, phosphorus, uh, glucose, amino acids, bicarbonate, should be, uh, in, under normal circumstances, reabsorbed and coming back in this direction. And this is just to sort of highlight briefly um, the transporters that are used to transport tenofovir, um, primarily the organic anion transporter 1 or OAT1, um, to a lesser extent OAT3. Um, and it largely gets out of the cell using MRP4, the multidrug resistance protein 4, um, which is not the one that's been studied in most of the studies. The reason um, most of the genetic studies focused on uh, MRP2, uh, the idea by the, behind that being that there was already at that time noticed uh, to be an association between the use of boosted protease inhibitors and tenofovir toxicity. So the thought was that this was a ritonavir effect, and ritonavir was known in, on its long list of, um, of potential uh, drug interactions was known to interfere um, with the efflux of, of um, things through MRP2, um, which doesn't seem to be the, the mechanism. I think the more recent data would suggest that the, this is actually just an increase in uh, trough levels based on uh, absorption of tenofovir. So some, of, some but not all of the boosted protease inhibitors um, increase the biologic availability of tenofovir from TDF. What happens, you know, I mentioned this is, is probably reversible when we see these acute uh, cases. There, there are some data to suggest that maybe there's an increase in risk of long-term problems with the use of these drugs. Um, this was sort of the first study that, that um, picked this up. This is with data from the Uraceta cohort. They essentially looked at the use of any agent versus its non-use um, in patients who are receiving antiretroviral therapy. Um, and four drugs came out as associated with the creatinine clearance of less than 60. Those four drugs were tenofovir, um, indenivir, which I think none of us would find surprising. Um, and this was sort of the first, the splash from the study was really the adazanivir, which was um, unexpected, um, although the study came out right about the time that the FDA added the black box warning for kidney stones. Um, so I think, although I'm not going to focus on this in this talk, um, because there really aren't a whole lot of data to support that, but there is at least a, a plausible biologic mechanism by which adazanivir could cause um, chronic kidney disease, not just by the development of stones, but the other um, phenomenon that was associated with indenivir was the same crystals that could predispose patients to stones also could predispose patients to interstitial nephritis. Kidney doesn't like to see those crystals there. They tend to um, form, you know, cause an inflammatory reaction. So it's possible. Um, there certainly are case reports of interstitial nephritis in patients receiving adazanivir. There are some recent data to suggest that 
if you look at um, different produce inhibitors, the levels of uh, atazanavir, for example, are higher in the urine um, than with some of the other protease inhibitors, again, suggesting this is sort of a, a concentration effect. There's a lot of drug there. It's not that uh, soluble at uh, urine pH. And so these drugs tend to precipitate and form small crystals. So crystal urea is certainly not in, as common, it looks like, from, from the limited data that are available as it was with indenivir, but it does happen. So there's a potential mechanism, I think, here. And it may be that that's the same case with uh, boosted lopinavir, although that's less clear. Uh, more recently, the DAD cohort has done a similar analysis. Again, this is an, uh, another European cohort. Um, they looked at uh, two cutoffs. They looked at a GFR of less than 70 and a GFR of less than 60. And interestingly, um, all four of those same drugs were associated with um, a, a, a GFR of less than 70, an increased risk of that outcome. Um, but only boosted lopinavir remained associated with GFR less than 60. Um, an important caveat here is that when they looked um, at the discontinuation of, uh, oops, sorry. When they looked at, at drug discontinuation, there was a lot more discontinuation. I can't get back to that slide. But they looked, there was a lot more discontinuation of tenofovir um, in patients who developed a GFR of less than 60, which I think is reassuring. It means that clinicians are paying attention. Um, they're getting close to a dose reduction threshold anyway. Maybe in some cases they suspected that tenofovir was the culprit. Um, so it's impossible to say whether in a cohort that was where providers were less vigilant, whether um, this would have been the case. So I think a little bit of this we've talked about, but um, I just wanted to, to sort of provide a little bit of extra insight into um, the past year in terms of tenofovir toxicity. I think one important other issue is that tenofovir has now been approved um, in combination with FTC for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, there, um, interestingly, so this is exposure in an HIV uninfected population, where this is no longer part of sort of life-sustaining antiretroviral therapy, but now just a prophylactic medication. Um, it's reassuring that the randomized control trials have, known, have shown no overt kidney or bone toxicity. Um, it's reassuring until you remember that A, the HIV trials for tenofovir didn't show any overt kidney or bone toxicity, um, and also until you remember that the vast majority of the PrEP trials have not had very high adherence. In fact, many of them have failed to show an effect, um, and it's thought to be partly because of the poor adherence. Um, the one study that's looked in more detail, IPREX, which was um, all in men who have sex with men, um, did show a greater decline in creatinine clearance in the uh, active treatment arm, uh, the tenofovir FTC arm, which is consistent with the uh, data that I showed before in the HIV population. So it suggests that the same effect could happen in HIV uninfected individuals exposed to TDF. Um, again, we've talked about um, and this is an audience that's well aware of this, but the approval of the fixed dose combination with cobacistat. Um, and uh, I will just move on to the next slide. Um, as, as Mike mentioned, there are uh, clear data to suggest that there's no decline in true measured GFR with the exposure of healthy volunteers to cobacistat, um, while there is a decline in estimated GFR based on the, this um, sort of artificial rise in serum creatinine. So back to the, uh, the schematic of the proximal tubule that everybody's been dying for. Um, again, just a reminder, here's tenofovir coming out through these transporters. Here's creatinine that's getting out um, using largely organic um, cation transporters one and two. Um, 
And uh, you can see that uh, mate one is the transporter that uh, that Mike mentioned that affects the transport or that's affected by uh, by cobacystat. Just as a reminder, and to put this in context, the effect of cobacystat is not as strong as the effect of trimethoprim, but it actually is occurring through the same transporter. So, um, you know, for those of you who've had to treat patients for PCP with high doses, for example, of trimethoprim sulfa, you've seen this effect firsthand, and this effect can be pretty dramatic um, with trimethoprim at, at treatment doses, certainly. Um, this is the same uh, transporter that's inhibited. Interestingly, this transporter, at least in vitro, is also inhibited by ropivirine. Um, so suggesting that another fixed dose, dose combination um, with TDF has the potential to be a, uh, not maybe not nephrotoxic, but nephroconfusing. Um, and uh, so it's something to keep in mind. The other point I'd like to make here is that although the average effect is about 1.1 to 0.15 milligrams per deciliter increase, which is pretty small. It has some effect on your estimated GFR because changes, small changes when your, G, when your creatinine is normal make a larger change in GFR. This is, this is an average, and there are going to be some patients who will have a more dramatic rise than that. Um, this rise should, again, it should occur essentially immediately, so it should be if you see the patient two weeks afterwards, they should already have this increase. It shouldn't be that you find it you know, three, six months later. Um, but there is going to be some variability, some wiggle room around that. Um, and I guess the question is, if you have a patient whose creatinine goes up by 0.3 milligrams per deciliter, do you tolerate that, or is that something that you need to, 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 you know, to give, should that give you pause? Um, finally, because I know you're all dying to know, um, organic cation transporter 2, which is the transporter for one of the transporters for serum creatinine, um, is the one that's inhibited by dolutegravir. And again, that effect seems to be pretty similar in magnitude to the effect of cobacystat. Um, what about uh, tenofovir um, alafenamide fumarate, or TAF, uh, formerly known as GS7430? Um, again, Mike mentioned that this drug has lower tenofovir concentrations. Um, the phase two studies have showed, um, have suggested that there's less impact on kidney and bone. Um, and the PK studies, interestingly, have suggested that this drug, uh, something that's particular interest to me, um, may not require dose reduction in patients who have fairly advanced kidney disease. So um, with GFRs as low as 15, patients may not, um, may be able to take full dose uh, TAF. I'm going to move on just briefly to the second case. You guys all got the answer right anyway, so I think we can do this one quickly. But um, this is a 43-year-old African-American woman with long-standing diabetes, hypertension, and chronic kidney disease. You can see she's on a suboptimal um, HIV regimen, which was by her choice. Um, and uh, she took a couple medications for blood pressure as well as on insulin. She um, Pretty much everything is suboptimal. She's her blood pressure is not at target. She is overweight. Um, her phosphorus is too high, which is in, pa in patients with chronic kidney disease. Again, this is because of decreased GFR, but this is a bad marker for prognosis. Um, she's got heavy proteinuria. She has glycosuria similar to our other patient, but in this patient, I suspect the glycosuria is because her serum glucose is out of control. Um, and her CD4, as you can see, is actually the only thing that, that looks good. So her CD4 is around 600 and always has been. Um, so I, I guess uh, I, I may skip over this question because I think we, in the interest of time, but I, I did want to point out that um, HIV-associated nephropathy, I think I can't give a talk on kidney disease without at least touching on this disease, um, is sort of the good of um, antiretroviral therapy in the setting of HIV infection. 
Um, this is a disease, this is sort of the classic kidney disease of HIV infection. It's associated with advanced HIV disease. Um, there is a strong racial disparity. This is a disease that affects African Americans or patients of West African descent almost exclusively. Um, and this is because of a genetic predisposition that's been uh, pretty well described in the last um, four or five years. Um, now the IASUSA, IDSA, Department of Health and Human Services guidelines would all suggest that the diagnosis of HIVAN is an um, absolute indication for the initiation of antiretroviral therapy regardless of CD4. This rarely comes into play because most patients have a low CD4 um, at the time of presentation with HIVAN, but we do occasionally diagnose somebody early um, with proteinuria um, and relatively preserved CD4, and those patients would benefit from antiretroviral therapy. Um, the, the sort of spectrum of disease has changed with um, aggressive antiretroviral therapy. We're seeing much less HIVAN. I very rarely see a case these days. Um, I'm seeing much more diabetes and hypertension, which are the leading causes of end-stage renal disease in the general population. Um, I would mention I think kidney biopsy is, is underutilized for diagnosis in this population, um, particularly for patients who are candidates for kidney transplant. It's, it's helpful to have those data in advance. Um, and there is a nice study from the Hopkins group to suggest that there's really no increase in procedural risk in HIV-positive individuals. Um, so in our patient, she did have a kidney biopsy, which was consistent with advanced diabetic and hypertensive kidney disease. Um, and we had to talk about how to manage her. Um, some of the same things that we do in a general population, uh, blood pressure and glycemic control, cardiovascular risk modification, although the data for um, that intervention are not great. Um, and again, nephrology referral for end-stage renal disease planning, whether that's consideration of kidney transplant or decision between the dialysis modalities, which seem to be equivalent in terms of survival. So patients with HIV do just as well if they're treated with peritoneal dialysis or hemodialysis. There are some differences in the infectious complications that you might expect with those two modalities, but this overall survival tends to be the same. So it really should be an individualized decision. Um, the, the best data, I think, to support the use of kidney transplant in this population come from a large prospective observational study that included 150 um, HIV-positive kidney transplant recipients, as well as patients receiving other solid organ transplants. These were pretty carefully selected individuals. They all had to be on stable antiretrovirals with well-controlled HIV, um, and they did really well. Um, there was no increase in opportunistic infections. The graft survival was similar to other sort of higher risk um, populations that we, that we routinely transplant. Um, and the two most important things that were found was a higher rate of acute kidney rejection um, and very significant drug-drug interactions. Um, this group was pretty well aware, it seems, that the protease inhibitors have an incredibly profound effect on the levels of calcineurin inhibitors, where patients will go from taking their drug um, essentially twice a day to needing to take it as little as once a week. Um, and it's thought that this is um, probably, although the drug levels are higher, there's probably less consistency that maybe the area under the curve is not as good and that that may actually be contributing to the increased rate of acute rejection. Um, so there is, uh, you know, certainly should be some consideration of switching patients to a protease inhibitor sparing regimen. Um, often patients or uh, providers are trying to do this, and some transplant centers actually require it um, prior to transplantation to demonstrate the patients can do well on this alternative regimen. Um, alternatively, you can keep people on their regimen and then switch them afterwards, but, you know, there, there are some pros and cons to either approach. 
Um, I'll also just point out quickly that there are limited data on the use of tenofovir um, after kidney transplantation. Um, obviously, there are some, you know, reason to be concerned, but it's also, um, and, and for the most part, seems to be pretty well tolerated. Um, so I'll stop there and uh, and take questions about, certainly about the things that I sort of, oh, I guess I'm supposed to ask you guys whether you learned anything. Probably not, because you knew it all in the beginning. So um, I don't want to know, I really don't want to know if the 8% of you who got it wrong the first time are, are, <laughs> are still wrong, because um, that just means you slept. Um, great. So any questions? Great. So this is good. So I'm glad like, the questions look like they're going to be things that I that I didn't cover in much detail. OK. Yeah. How'd they do? They did great. Yeah, I mean, the 80%. That's great. Well, well thank you very much, Christina. Thanks. Very nice to So, so we um, have some time for questions. And you can come to the microphone or have a few question cards here. <clears throat> so what's the likelihood of a patient with HIV nephropathy uh, on dialysis, being able to come off dialysis once you start treating with H for HIV. Right, so, oh, oh, yeah, I'm not, yeah. not mic'd, so I'm going to have to kick him out. Um, the uh, this is a really good question. So patients with high van actually can have a, a not a full recovery. If you um, there have been a few cases where we've actually repeated biopsies and the patients still have histologic evidence of high van, but I'd say the vast majority of patients who have a sort of rapid course and require hemodialysis or, or peritoneal dialysis actually can come off of dialysis with antiretroviral therapy. Um, these patients are still prone to the disease, so I can think of two cases of mine where patients were started on antiretrovirals, came off dialysis, were left with some residual chronic kidney disease. These are not patients who go back to creatinines of 0.6, but they run around with creatinines of 2 or 3 um, off dialysis. One patient um, got very sick and his antiretrovirals were stopped. A second patient um, went back to his home country in the Ivory Coast and ran out of antiretrovirals. And in both cases, the patients uh, redeveloped aggressive disease and, and required dialysis again. So it's, it, it will come back if you stop, but it is it can respond pretty well to treatment. Well, so I think the main reason is antiretroviral therapy. Why that is exactly, we don't know, um, because not all of the drugs really penetrate the kidney well. Um, it doesn't seem to matter what HIV regimen you're, you're using to treat it. Um, the pathogenesis of the disease is thought to, to reflect um, direct to HIV infection of the kidney, HIV gene expression in the kidney, and this disease develops. And that's what all of the sort of animal models would suggest. But the fact that antiretroviral therapy works um, and we can still find HIV virus in the kidney of some of these patients does sort of raise some questions about how much of it is this sort of systemic milieu or even people have started suggesting maybe endogenous retroviruses or, or other um, things that we hadn't really considered in the past. But it is. I. Sure. 
Sure. So, I mean, the, the I guess different societies have different guidelines for how often um, tenofovir should be measured. I think actually early on is probably not when most of us see tenofovir toxicity. This is not a hypersensitivity reaction. So unless patients have had significant exposure to a related drug like sodofovir or were in you know an HIV treatment trial with a defovir in the past and developed toxicity, most patients aren't going to develop this. It's a cumulative toxicity. You're not going to see it for six months. So, you know, the tendency tends to be to check a lot when we first start patients on a new drug and then to sort of tail off right about the time that I think most patients start to develop toxicity. So, you know, I think if you're checking quarterly labs, that's probably fine for the vast majority of patients. If you started to see a little bit of a concerning rise in the creatinine, um, especially in the era of all of these sort of nephro-confusing drugs, I think it would be reasonable to check protect potentially more often. Um, the question about when to stop is a good one. Um, and I think the, the really challenging one, you know, if you've got a young patient who's got other options, who's got no comorbid reasons to have a rise in creatinine, I would say you stop it right away. The first time the creatinine goes up 0 0.2, 0 0.4, something outside of the lab you know, variability. Um, or when they start to develop hypophosphatemia or something else that really signals tenofovir toxicity. The, the challenging ones are either the patients that have a compelling reason for this regimen, their hepatitis B co-infected, or who have, and often these are the same patients, multiple comorbid risk factors for kidney disease. So they're diabetic, they're hypertensive, they've already got some microalbuminuria or gross, you know, overt albuminuria from their diabetes. Those patients are much more challenging um, to make a decision about. And I think close monitoring and, and you know, consideration of whether there's an alternative regimen that would be as good for them um, is appropriate. But in, in many cases, we end up continuing those patients on therapy. Okay, so we'll do a couple of really quick questions with quick answers. This first one was about the case one and the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs mm -hmm. and how much that might be contributing. Sure. So there have been a couple of studies that are cases, certainly, of patients who developed acute kidney injury from tenofovir in the setting of, of non-steroidal use. And that's not really surprising. I mean, the bottom line is anything that makes your GFR drop. If, if patients are taking, you know, massive anti-inflammatory doses for chronic use, um, this causes sort of renal vasoconstriction and it decreases your GFR. So if patients already have a marginal GFR or creatinine clearance for the, you know, to be on full dose tenofovir and they suddenly drop it a little bit further with the non-steroidal or another nephrotoxic agent, then I think it's reasonable to expect it. I think in this case, she just happened to start taking it in the middle of all right. this, but and, and I, and it is certainly can be a contributor. Right. The follow-up question was, should you avoid non-steroidals in everyone on tenofovir? I don't think so. I mean, there are some European data, to, again, recently published to suggest that, you know, patients who are taking high doses of non-steroidals um, may have some increased risk for tenofovir toxicity. Um, but I think, you know, patients who are taking high doses of non-steroidals have their own risk, regardless of whether they're on tenofovir. So I think maybe they should be more closely monitored. But um, but, but I think you can't, it's not reasonable to expect we're going to avoid it in all those patients. Straightforward management question. How often should tests of renal function be measured and what? should be in order. Sure. So, I mean, I think in a tenofovir-treated patient, I would probably check a serum creatinine um, at least quarterly. Uh, baseline creatinine is something that gets forgotten. I don't know if anybody here is taking care of adolescents, but I see often see adolescents who are started on tenofovir and don't have a baseline creatinine. Like, they have a baseline. I mean, I know they're creatinine at some point, but it was like a year before they started on tenofovir. So I would say before you start a regimen um, is, is probably one of the most important times. Um, quarterly in patients who have risk factors, and, you know, if you're seeing patients once a year, then once a year. Yeah. What about urine, uh, albumin, creatinine, and 
phosphorus. So, so urine, albumin, and creatinine, just in general, in HIV patients, the recommendations now are to check um, at, at the time of diagnosis. Um, and if it's negative and patients have no risk factors, they're not on tenofovir, they're not African American, they don't have diabetes, hypertension, or hepatitis C, then you're sort of done. Um, for patients with any of those risk factors, um, testing is, re is uh, recommended annually, um, either with the urine protein creatinine ratio. If it's been negative, you could probably just check a routine urinalysis for protein, um, except in diabetics, obviously, where microalbuminuria testing is recommended. Um, is, is there a genetic test available for HIVAN? Well, there's a genetic test. There is a genetic test available for HIVAN. We don't use it for diagnostic purposes, but there is um, a very strong genetic linkage to uh, a locus on chromosome 22 that includes about 30 genes, and we think we know which gene it is, this gene APOL1. Um, actually, one of, we were talking about test questions on the, uh, on the USMLE boards last night, and I think a test question a few years ago on the um, ID recertification boards was about MyH9, which was the first gene that was thought to be associated um, with HIV-associated nephropathy. It's, it's sort of now been debunked, and it's thought to be the gene next door. But something on that locus is associated. I, you know, I think at this point, a kidney biopsy is probably the more useful way to make a definitive diagnosis. Yeah, the genetic neighborhood. And I guess we'll finish since we're in Washington, but there's a bill that's before Congress, I don't think it's passed yet, called the HOPE legislation, which is mm -hmm. to allow HIV-positive donors, if they get to a point where they've been declared brain dead, whatever, to donate organs to other HIV positives. Do you know any update on that? And yeah, I don't know an update on on sort of progress on the hill, but I mean, I, I you know I can update you on the the this is something that was first tried in South Africa, um, where there's such a high burden of HIV infection, and essentially there was no willingness to transplant to give patients um, who are HIV positive in most cases even dialysis, but certainly not a kidney transplant from the general population of cadaveric donors. Um, and those patients actually, a uh, recent update from the nephrologist there, are, continue to do very well. So the HIV-positive individuals who've received HIV-positive transplants have had um, very good outcomes. So, you know, I think it's a reasonable, I think it's absolutely a reasonable thing to consider. Obviously, for you guys there, in addition to drug-drug interactions, there may be complicated issues with, you know, new resistance mutations and everything else, but, um, but I, I do think it's a reasonable approach. Okay, and then we get to answer our question here, our last one. Okay. Yeah. Do they want to answer? So, okay. Um, the same one you had before, let's just see how people do now. So go ahead and vote. Right. All right. So 3% of you are still asleep, but that's okay. <laughs> or don't know how to use this little gizmo. That's also or possible. contrarian. <laughs> yeah. Either way. All right. Did we have time for one? Yeah, one She's more been, question. One more. Yes. So, so yes, you have you make a very good point. This particular individual who had well compensated cirrhosis um, probably had no business taking a nonsteroidal in the first place, um, and that may actually have been what triggered some people to guess a renal syndrome because that also you know those two things together can really mess with renal blood flow. 
Um, and, and the other point, which is this, this was a patient who was a setup for um, unrecognized decrease in her kidney function because not only was she small, but she was cirrhotic and, and cirrhosis is associated with decreased muscle mass. So yes, those patients I think are patients where we do have to be extra careful. Thank you very much.